0: What do a dusty old crocodile, a man's severed foot, and a rat with human teeth have in common? If you're thinking a nightmare, good guess. Wrong, though, because the croc, the foot, and the rat aren't the stuff of bad dreams at all. But they are stuffed. We're talking taxidermy, and today's story takes us from a medieval church to a scissor-happy scheming nurse to a workshop in Tennessee where roadkill... Is lovingly transformed into art. Make out a small beam of light against the mirror. True, <laughs> True. weird <laughs> stuff. If you're ever lucky enough to visit Italy and you happen to make a pilgrimage to the very small town of Pantanosa, chances are you're headed to see the portrait of the weeping Madonna, the Virgin Mary, that is not the pop star. See, a miracle took place in this small village way back in 1511. A group of shepherdesses were visiting the town's small chapel and they were gazing at a portrait of the crucifixion. Christ flanked on each side by St. John the Blessed Mother, the Madonna. As the young women gazed at the painting, they saw Mary's left eye open and close. Blood appeared on her cheek. As one of the girls used her apron to wipe away the bloody tears, the painted virgin spoke to them. She instructed the shepherdesses to share the news of this miracle far and wide, and she also declared that a church should be built in her name on this very ground. So extraordinary was this event that the construction of the new cathedral was authorized just eight days later and was completed by 1533. Today, it's called the Sanctuary of Our Lady of Immaculate Tears. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, well, cool, cool, cool. But you'd have to be kind of a hardcore Catholic to make that trip, right? I mean, it's pretty off the beaten tourist path, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. But there's another reason to pay a visit to the cathedral at Ponte Hanging from its rafters is the world's oldest known piece of taxidermy, an enormous stuffed crocodile. Now, where the stuffed croc came from has been lost to time, though the church has documents on this particular piece of taxidermy that date back to 1534. So we do know for certain that the croc is at least 500 years old. It managed to go missing rather mysteriously for many years until it turned up in the 1700s right in the church attic. What'd they do? They dusted it off and they strung it up from the rafters where it's been dangling ever since. But why? Crocodiles are not holy creatures in the Catholic cosmology. And for anyone out there who's thinking, Yeah, but well, don't Catholics pray to statues? Maybe they also worship reptiles. No, and no again. Neither of those things are true. And the taxidermy croc in the cathedral at Pantanosa actually isn't even the only crocodile on display in a European church. There are at least two more in Italy alone. So let me ask it again. But why? Like all of the best random and weird human artifacts, this one is good and mysterious. Some people have argued that crocodiles were once native to Europe, and used to harass and stalk and eat the people. Now, the problem with this idea is that there is zero evidence to support it, as in, like, none. And even if you decide to go with the notion that crocs once gnawed their way through the population of Europe, why would those, like, hunting trophies be displayed in churches? Other people have suggested that ancient churches were once packed with all sorts of taxidermy beasts, whole menageries even. But only the crocodile's tough hide managed to survive the ravages of time. Again, no evidence out there to back up the whole churches full of stuffed animals hypothesis. The theory that does seem to make the most sense is that the crocodile is the one real animal on Earth that most closely fits the biblical description of a dragon. And listen, there are some right juicy dragon tales in the good book, like saint george anybody the holy old crocodile in pontinosa is impressive but taxidermy is a far more ancient art than that and you know who invented it right say it with me max ancient, ancient, ancient egyptians. egyptians crazy how they seem to have invented everything but electricity and dipping dots isn't it back in the days of the pharaohs it was common to preserve and mummify the ruler's animals Birds, dogs, monkeys, cats, all preserved with spices and oils, and then chucked into the tomb to accompany their masters into the afterlife. Taxidermy for the ancient Egyptians was a practical matter, not an aesthetic one. So they didn't trouble themselves with getting a monkey or a dog just right, which means to us, their results would probably look both horrifying and hilarious. Now, maybe you grew up around hunters like I did, and your whole idea of taxidermy is trophies. The 12-point buck mounted on the living room wall, the fox captured mid prowl the enormous moose head keeping watch at a sports bar, wildlife museums with enormous grizzly bears standing on two legs, massive paws and claws outstretched, mouths open and a permanent roar. When you think about it, for a lot of us, Taxidermy is the closest we'll ever get to a caribou or a bobcat or a bear. Movies like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, might have given you some pretty whack ideas about what taxidermy is or the kind of people taxidermists are. At the most fundamental level, taxidermy is about skin. And taxidermists are artists and preservationists. There's even a Natural History Museum in Paris that has an entire exhibit devoted to the taxidermy mounts of extinct animals. They keep the lights extra low and the air extra cool to help preserve these final relics of animal species that once roamed the earth, but they're now lost forever. Like Schomburg's deer, a creature native to Thailand that was hunted into extinction for its ornate antlers. And the quagga, a very peculiar blend of a donkey and a zebra. It got its name for its distinctive and weird cry, which sounded like quaga, quagga, quagga. Kind of breaks your heart a little bit, doesn't it? A museum of extinct animals? There is a lot of truly terrible, hilariously bad taxidermy out there. And some of the most famous examples are actually housed in museums all over the world. Like the hugely overstuffed walrus at London's Horniman Museum and Gardens. The taxidermist who created it in 1866 had never even seen a walrus. And no one bothered to send any sort of description of the animal along with its hide. So he didn't know that walruses are wrinkly. He stuffed it till it looks like an exploding ballpark hot dog. Oops. And how about the legendary lion of Gripsholm Castle in Sweden? The taxidermist there who gamely tried to capture the likeness of King Frederick's the first deceased giant kitty best friend. Ended up creating something so goofy that it resembles a stuffed toy dreamt up in the imagination of a lunatic. But let's forget mounted trophies and scientific exhibits for museums. Because there's an entire world of taxidermy that has less to do with realism and everything to do with art and expression. Weird taxidermy. And gaffes, creatures that never existed anywhere except in the taxidermist's imagination. The most famous taxidermy gaffe of all time is probably the legendary Fiji Mermaid, exhibited by none other than P.T. Barnum back in 1842. My personal favorite gaffe is the jackalope, that fearsome jackrabbit with a full rack of antlers. It was invented in Douglas, Wyoming in 1934 by a taxidermist named Ralph Herrick with some help from his brother Doug. Jackalopes are a nice lucrative little business out west today quality mounts will set you back hundreds and hundreds of dollars and as much as i begged my parents for a jackalope we never had that kind of money to burn but today the true weird stuff hq is guarded by our very own jackalope his name is dante don't ever give up on your dreams this is taxidermy that isn't aiming for scientific realism at all taxidermy is art and expression anthropomorphic taxidermy animals cast in human settings, or how about taxidermy chimeras, fantastical creatures made by combining the hides, pelts, feathers, claws, and teeth of all kinds of animals. The wealthy, you know, like the aristocracy and nobility, dating all the way back to the Renaissance, collected these sorts of objects and showed them off to their friends in something they called the cabinet of curiosity. Back in the days before we had, you know, Netflix and games and mp3 players you had to make your own fun and what could be more fun than having some folks over for a flagon of mead and to see your newly acquired mermaid the enthusiasm for collecting these sorts of things comes in and out of fashion but it's never gone away because people people are just so odd and so weird and so very interesting i met a taxidermist who specializes in the weird and the strange and an event called the Oddities and Curiosities Expo. His name is Matthew Fight, and he's the artist behind Rogue Wolf Taxidermy in Murfreesboro,
1: Tennessee. So I've always had a love for nature and animals, even you know as, as far as I could remember as a kid. Um, you know, when I would walk around the yard, you know, I, I would find bird feathers and dead bugs. And I would want to put them in like a, a scrapbook of sorts. So I think that was kind of like the first starting of it all. Um, but then later in life, when I was about uh, 13, I joined Boy Scouts and uh, that really got it started because in one of the handbook it, it kind of had like a, a diagram that would kind of start you off, like how to how to process a, a I think it was like a squirrel or something, and um, tell you all the steps to do it. Um, so, so, so
0: did you at that age grab yourself a squirrel and and commence to trying to process <laughs> and preserve the pelt?
1: <laughs> Not far after that I started, but no. At 13, I was more asking my parents for... Um, Christmas and birthdays instead of toys and stuff that a normal kid would ask for. I always wanted them to to buy me, um, like a taxidermy something, you know, those kind of, uh, like gift shop, like taxidermy gator feet and stuff from like, um, Florida and, and stuff like that. And there's every, anytime I saw like a taxidermy anything in like an antique store, I would always be like, I want that. So it kind of started that way. But then uh, I'd say when I was probably about 15 is when I actually started to dabble in it. So um, up until that point, I I would also, if I came across, say, like uh, a dead animal walking in the woods or something, I would try to bury it. And then I would come back and and pull the bones up and I would collect the bones. So I started in that side of it. but then one day I came across this dead rat that one of our outside cats had killed. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I can bury it and, you know, it, what if assuming something doesn't drag it off, then I'll have some bones and that's cool. But, you know, I, I referenced back to that boy scout manual that kind of showed me how to do it. And I was like, I'm going to try to do it. So <laughs> I tried and it basically turned into a, uh, rat fur sausage. It had no structure in it. Very, very uh, crude, for sure. But that was definitely the the start.
0: I'm wondering if, like, your family and friends and neighbors uh, were at all troubled by the sight of the young Matthew digging up bones <laughs> and then, you know, turning the rat into a sausage. Like, I think we all can understand that for people who are not fans of or into taxidermy that can look like some real unsolved mysteries level behavior.
1: And I'm sure they did, but if my family was kind of troubled by it, they, they never really showed it. Um, they, they were for the most part, pretty supportive actually. Um, so, I mean, they would get me like, you know, the taxidermy things for Christmas and, um, they were all, they were fine with it as far as I know. So, and I think it was that gradual transition rather than just kind of a, hey, I want to play with this dead thing. You know, it it was, they always knew I loved animals. So I think that was less disturbing for them in that, in that sense.
0: If you're getting a young Jeffrey Dahmer vibe, I understand because that's the pop culture frame of reference we have. It drives Matthew crazy
1: you know, and I hate that media has to kind of portray the taxidermist as this Norman Bates kind of serial killer. And that's, that's like his starting approach. And then it goes into people. And, you know, a lot of us aren't like that. You know, most taxidermists are just a bubba ray, good old boy who hunts and and stuffs deer. And then the others like us have this possibly morbid fascination with it, but otherwise are the nicest people and the most harmless people you ever come across.
0: So let's talk about the kind of people that are drawn to taxidermy as an art form. I mean, for a lot of folks, they think about it sure. as something hunters do, right? You go and you get a trophy buck or an mm-hmm. elk or whatever, and you take it to a taxidermist and there it is mounted on your wall, proof of your great hunting skill. But that's just one kind of taxidermy. There's an entire art world. And there's a spiritual component to it. So when you're when you're yeah. making when you're making something and you're making it for a person, um, who are the people that are coming to you?
1: You know, a lot of the people that come to me are actually um, what I would call just regular people. Um, usually, they're looking for uh, a pet. That they're that they're missing um, that they recently lost and and just want to keep that that part of them um, forever. So a lot of the people that I do clientele work with are um, pet owners, um, and then I get all sorts. So as far as taxidermy goes, I mean a lot of people don't look at it, but if you look at old Victorian era taxidermy, it's not very different than what I do now with the. Uh, say anthropomorphic rats and, and frogs and things like that. They, they were still doing that back then. So like you said, it kind of has this first start out of deer heads for hunters or turkeys for hunters, but there's this whole grouping of people that you would just kind of like the odd people, um, that are into it. And tattoo artists, uh, reptile owners, um, kind of this punk rock era of people all kind of tend to flock towards it.
0: Your work is, is um, kind of surreal and dreamy. Let's, let's talk about some of the pieces that you do. I I saw some of Matthew's work at an oddities and curiosity expo, which is a kind of a traveling convention for say it with me, oddities and curiosities. And one of the (laughs) things that made me jump backward from your work were, the um, your use of human teeth with some of your pieces. So let's let's start. Talk to us about that.
1: Well, I'll start by saying that they're not real human teeth. Um, you know, you can definitely find those places, but I use just acrylic denture sets. Um, you can buy just like individual teeth um, as a set for for making dentures, basically. So they're acrylic plastic, basically, um, and I use that in some of my pieces. And I started doing that fairly recently. Um, and it, it's just, let's go weird. Let's go macabre. Like how weird can I make it? And and how do people react to that? So uh, a lot of my inspiration comes from both fantasy uh, genres of books and, and movies and like those horror for sure. So horror is a big one and, you know, eyes, teeth, That tends to give people the the heebie jeebies. And I I like to see the reaction in that.
0: There's kind of a reckoning that you make with your own mortality when you see um, pieces that are meant to represent, because I know you're not using real human eyes and real human teeth, right? But when you see parts of the human anatomy kind of transposed onto an animal's body, there's just like this weird, like, feeling that goes through you. Because on the one hand, you have to remember that you too are an animal and on the other hand you have to remember that you too are mortal and impermanent and i think that's what that's the unsettling aspect of, of your particular work as a taxidermist for me is that it's in it, it 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 kind of lives in that um that corner that intersection of stuff that is completely familiar and you expect to see and stuff that should never ever exist in the real world.
1: I've never heard it worded so perfectly, actually. That's that's really good. Yeah. That's basically what it does to you. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it is uh, seeing just parts of, of human anatomy mixed in. It kind of does give like this, we too will eventually die. And, and, you know, is this real? Is this a real eyeball or tooth or, you know, it does kind of bring an awakening to your own mortality.
0: And you mentioned how a lot of the client work that, you know, people come and they commission a amount. Is that the correct way to say it in taxidermy? They commission amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. it's for a pet. So I've read a lot of interesting things about pet taxidermy and how, you know, you might want to rethink it because what you're trying to capture is this sort of ineffable spirit of this beloved companion animal And, and even the best, most skillful and soulful taxidermy work doesn't give you that. And then what happens to it when, you know, like when you die and your kids are, are, are dealing with stuffed Muffy or whatever it was. So do you have conversations, right? Do you have conversations with the people who come to you grieving the loss of these beloved animals and what it is they're hoping for?
1: Yeah. So, I, ironically, I do try to kind of steer people away from just a traditional taxidermy mount, say for a dog, where you really do have to get that expression perfect, or else that's not their dog. That's just a dog. So, uh, you know, when it comes to stuff like that, I, I try to actually gear towards um, skeletal preservation. Um, so, it's a lot easier to look at a skeleton and not see exactly Rover, but then know it's there symbolically. Um, things like that, things like just preserving some parts of the skin, even having a frame. So you basically have just this kind of hand fur and you can kind of pet and it'll still feel like your dog that you miss and everything. Um, but certain animals are easier than others. So dogs are, are obviously the hardest. I mean, I would say, getting a dog's expression right would be trying, like, to get a person's expression right. It's nearly impossible. Oh, um, that's interesting. But I get a lot so of,
0: getting, capturing that sort yeah. of spark of identity that you see in a dog's eyes and faces, that that's just as, dif- you're that that is so fascinating. That would be as hard as a person. That says a lot about dogs, doesn't it?
1: It says a lot about dogs. I mean, they're man's best friends. So, of course, you know, we we see all those fine details in their expression and in their faces that that you would have the same details you would see in a person and recognizing your dog versus, you know, someone else's dog or your grandmother versus her someone else's grandmother. So right, it's, it's just right. that detail that you, you can't really get. Um, but I do a lot of cats and they're a little bit easier. They still have that expression, but cats are, I guess, not as in tune with people as as a dog is so it's a little bit easier that way and you know i do a lot of like reptile and birds and those are the same way you know it's a reptile's face is like any other reptile's face for the most part
0: you're right about cats i read i read once that the reason that cats took over the internet and are so memeable is because cats have very expressive faces but their facial looks, there's like a catalog of cat faces and it's rare to find, um, a cat with a face so unusual that it can't be like universal. Right. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying about that. And of course, you know, fish, birds, lizards, do you get, um, do you get requests for bunnies and Guinea pigs and little tiny things like hamsters?
1: I, I probably get that second to most. Um, actually, I'd say that's first over over the reptiles and the cats. Um, small rabbits, you know, hamsters. I get clientele looking for those all the time, and you know, I, for the most part, I think they're already into the taxidermy business already, and that's probably how they got my name. But that's kind of like one. That's an easy one to start out with. You think about a rabbit and a hamster. They live what? between three to maybe 10 years at best. So, you know, it's no less love, but they kind of come through our lives a little bit faster than say a dog who might live up to 20 years.
0: And, and when you, when you do like, um, let's say you've taxidermied a bunny for someone and they've come to you and said, Matthew, this is Mr. Mr. Buttons and I would like to keep him forever. And I'd also like him wearing a tuxedo when he's finished. So have you had to also master the fine art of teeny tiny taxidermy animal seamstress work? Like because when and I'm we're going to send everyone I'm going to post links at trueweirdstuff.com for Matthew's social media and we're going to share pictures so that you can see his work cuz it's just so surreal and delightful. Like some of it you'll go ah and some of it you'll laugh out loud. I mean it's just so playful. But these these little outfits and little props and stuff, you're making all of that too.
1: Yeah. So I, I like to tell people as an art form, taxidermy is a mixture of painting, sculpting, carving, uh, hairstyling. Uh, and for me, with the anthropomorphic things, it involves seamstress and, and just clothes designing, fashion. So it's all these things tied into into one whole piece that kind of collabs together. Um, I could probably stand to be a little better with my clothing. So a, a lot of it is held together with glue instead of actual sewing just because it's faster and a little easier to do. But um, I, I do love when I finish, say, a, a tuxedo for a rat and, and see it, just perfectly matched and just fitted to the to the the rat itself so perfectly in detail that it does put a, a big smile on my face when it comes together in the end.
0: Let's go through a project. So take us take us from beginning to end with a project, um, animal of your
1: choice. Okay, okay, I'll start with one of the more popular ones that I do just because they're the easiest. So let's say you get a rat. Um, like I said earlier, I, I don't kill anything. I don't hunt, uh, none of that stuff. I'm a pure scavenger. So rats are easier to come by because you can go to a pet store or a website and buy frozen dead rats. And typically, you know, you'd feed that to a python or something, but I'll take some and, and use for myself. So I start with a rat, thaw it out, and then you make an incision. Uh, Depending on what kind of piece I do or what kind of animal I'm using, there's different forms to skinning. So there is more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, (laughs) Typically I'll I'll make a small incision from about where you would think the belly button is down to the groin and kind of start peeling the skin away from the, the muscle. So it's just held there with membrane, which is, surprisingly easy to detach um and think of it as just this clothing one-piece suit that's over your muscle body
0: so you're able to just kind of so, unzip the rat's pelt or skin or whatever the outer covering of the rat is you're able to just kind of work that off
1: yep you just kind of work it off um it's kind of like rolling the thumb between the membrane and it all kinds to kind of comes off from itself. So, you know, in the feet, small animals like that, I'll just cut the feet right there. So whether they're still attached to the skin itself, and I'll just kind of cut them at the joint, and they'll dry out just fine. And the tail, you just kind of slip off like a glove. Um, but let's say you finish all that, the gory details of the the skinning job. You got the body by itself. Put that aside. I have pets that will that will eat that. Um, I have a possum, so he gets to eat the body parts that we don't use for bones and stuff like that. Um, and then You're you just have the most th- fun th- I've had skin, in a long so. time.
0: I'm going to be honest with you, Matthew, you are the most fun. <laughs> so I didn't know possums. I guess I never really no. I never really thought to consider like what a possum's diet is. They're omnivores. They'll eat pretty much whatever. They're also scavengers.
1: Pretty much whatever. Um, okay. they, they have a really sensitive amount of, um, they, they get metabolic bone disease quite easily. So they have to have a good amount of calcium that you want in their natural diet. So uh, in the wild, they would eat rats and mice and whatever other little critter they might be able to catch. So it's just a good way for them to get those those nutrients and calciums in the bones and stuff naturally instead of having a, a poor diet, basically.
0: So you, and I you like to un- make sure
1: that the animal is always used.
0: Right. So you're not, because you said you're a scavenger and a true scavenger doesn't waste anything, right? I mean, everything has a purpose. Exactly. So you've, un, you've unzipped the rat and you've set its, its outer fur aside because taxidermy, and I think as a kid, I thought that taxidermy was the fur, the skeleton, the bones, all of it. And it, it, it isn't, is it?
1: No. So I mean, if you if you break down the word taxidermy itself, it basically means to move skin. So you know, I can't say when it actually started, like the term itself, but um, it was only the skin that you would keep. Um, it probably started in classification, where like they um, go to the Galapagos Islands and have all the Darwin finches. They're they're all skins that were just stuffed to Um, keep as a specimen. Um, So it's kind of all changed now. So taxidermy is kind of this broader term, uh, at least in the oddity community. And I could be anywhere from just a mummified cat that was just found under a house, or it could be just skeleton or just bones themselves, but in different uh, art forms. It it all kind of gets called taxidermy. but technically in itself, taxidermy is the process of preserving the skin.
0: So that is when you're working with um, a mount with an animal, that that is your primary objective is to get the skin off as cleanly as possible because that's going to be what you're working
1: with. That's your medium. Exactly. So one of my common questions I get from people is, are the eyes real or, you know, where are the guts and that sort of thing and, a lot of people don't understand that that's not how you preserve the animal. All that stuff is thrown away, basically. So you, you don't use any of that. It's just the skin that you then put over the mannequin, which back to the to the next step in the taxidermy process would be getting the mannequin. So I use um, polyurethane foam, uh, and it's just an expanding foam that I'll either pour into a fitted mold of said rat carcass uh, imprint basically and when it dries i can just pull it out and it'll be the shape of a rat or i'll kind of put it into a, a potato sized mass that the, then i can kind of carve out and just slice and dice it till it is carved out into that shape of the rat that's two different ways to to make a form that I typically use. There's other methods as well, but I find the polyurethane the most easy to work with.
0: Okay. So sometimes you, you hand carve the shape and sometimes you use mold. Okay. Then what happens?
1: So then you want to process the skin. um, And ideally you'll have the mold already done before you even do the skinning, but uh, you want to process the skin so it'll stay preserved. um, And, bugs and stuff won't eat it and it won't continue to rot. And so with a rat, uh, I start by soaking in an alcohol that'll help kind of heighten the skin around the fur. Um, small animals like rats are really easy to slip and that just means that the fur starts to to fall off from the skin itself, which then you got to either get really creative or kind of throw away that one altogether. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's the first process I use. And Then I start to dry them out. I use Borax. That's um, a tip that I learned from other taxidermists along the way from in my form. Um, and that'll help dry it out. It'll also help keep bugs from wanting to eat it. Borax is just basically laundry detergent, but it tends to do a good job. And um, while you're drying it out, you want to get every bit of muscle, fat... Uh, extra membrane, everything off that skin. So it comes off quite easy from the body, but it always leaves a little bit of, of subcutaneous fat or or little bits of muscle that pulled along the way. So you clean that off to where it's just one clean piece of skin from the inside and then fur on the outside. And if it's a big animal, you would want to pan it out, um, or at least... Uh, what's called a wet tan. Essentially, it's completely prepped to be tanned. You just don't put that softening oil agent on it. Or you do a regular tan and and you do put that softening agent. And that's basically making leather, but just with fur on one side of it. When I first started, of course, I was doing it um, just outside my house um, when I lived with my parents. um, And all the dirty stuff, let's say, was done outside once it became a cleaned off skin, I might move in the garage and, and start doing that. Um, but I was living in a one-bedroom apartment, which didn't give me a whole lot of room to do much of anything. Uh, I had a outside porch that I could do. Luckily, I was in a third story, so kind of kept out of the eyesight of most people. Um, But I did the dirty work there, and then I would just go into the living room. Of course, I had... a a table and everything covered to, to work with. But, um, yeah, I was pretty much working in my, in my one bedroom apartment. Uh, but recently I have a house now with a, a offset barn slash garage. That's kind of now my, my workshop. So I do most of all that stuff in there. And then when it just comes to, decorating or the fine detail work, airbrushing, that sort of stuff. I will bring it inside to, to work on in the living room or in our art room, basically.
0: So when you were Matthew, when you were um, in the one bedroom apartment, the third floor, one bedroom apartment mm-hmm. stage of taxidermy, um, did that make dating kind of challenging bringing people like to come back to my place? <laughs> don't mind, don't mind you the know, pelts luckily- and tiny feet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I uh, luckily met my wife before I started doing taxidermy, like as uh, intensely as I do it now. I, I always I did it since high school, but and yeah, dating was a little hard. But um, <laughs> in college, uh, I wasn't doing it as often, and, and I met my what was to be my my wife um, back then. And luckily she was kinda of into the same thing. So she didn't do tax interview, but she was collecting bones and, and doing that sort of stuff. So it was very welcomed and uh was just a, a smooth transition into it.
0: Good, good. Cause I mean after especially after the Netflix Dahmer documentary, it could be it could be challenging. You oh, meet yeah. a nice you know, let's say you're single, you meet a nice city girl, you bring her over, she sees the possum in one corner, the little pile of rat feet on the table. You're going <laughs> going to bed alone, I think that night. So I'm glad that it worked out for you.
1: Oh yeah, so, for sure. I'm, I'm definitely glad I found somebody now and, and not trying to be in the dating world just, you know, right now, because that would <laughs> definitely be uh pretty rough.
0: Um. So we've got, we've got, we've unzipped the rat. We have the pelt, you've tanned it or at least, you know, d- cured it to the degree that you're going to. You've got your, fa- your form mm-hmm. that you've made out of polystyrene. Now what happens?
1: All right. So think of the form as, uh, as a uh, uh, JCPenney's mannequin, okay? So okay. the skin is the clothing. Uh, if it's fitted right, then you will just start to shape the skin, uh, pull the skin over into the form using that incision you originally skinned it from. Um, if it's a big mount or a medium-sized mount, there's different uh, – it's basically hide glue. It's a, it's a glue paste that you would put on the form that adheres the skin to it, and it kind of gets those fine details around the muscle and that sort of thing and keeps the skin from shriveling or, or doing anything that it shouldn't. So um, that's one thing you would kind of put on as you're as you're mounting it and putting the skin over the form. Uh, but essentially, you just slip the form on, or the skin on, and uh, then you start to fit it around, like, the hips and around the thighs and, and get those all fitted into itself. So you do that, and you'll start to pin it in different areas, especially around the face. You'll pin the mouth and, like, the the nose area, so that'll give it a little expression in my rats, I always like to upturn one of the pins and give it on its on the side of its mouth a little bit of a of a Mona Lisa smile, if you will. Uh, that's just <laughs> one of my signature moves. Um, and then once you have it pinned, you get the fake eyes. You put those in there. Uh, you'll use um, I use like a, a mesh screen, like a, a bendable mesh screen and i'll kind of uh bend the ears and and kind of fit those ears in place so they don't shrink or shrivel or anything and then you wait you basically sew it up and kind of pin it into the position you need it to be in and let it sit out and dry uh that's the longest part of the process right there uh most things are typically done within a week's time. Uh, some things take longer. Some things take less. Uh, for instance, I actually just did some frogs the other night, and they're dried out and ready. So now they're ready for just some of the the finer detailing.
0: So I want to talk about like but, the soul of the animal. Not mm-hmm. you know, not everyone believes that animals have souls. So maybe we'll just say the word essence, and we can all agree that. Every every living thing has some force inside it, however you want to characterize it, right? And I'm wondering if when you're working with these animals, um, if those essences or souls speak to you, and I don't mean out loud and in words, you know, but you know, kind of guides you toward well, this this particular animal, this handsome gentleman, um, is going to get a Victorian frock coat. And this particular animal probably should be sitting on a tiny motorcycle. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do the do does the form, does the body, does the animal itself kind of lead part of your process?
1: I would say probably. I don't know if I've if I've ever given it as much thought. Um, what I think of most when I'm when I'm processing an animal, I do tend to think about that animal's life and how it must have lived and and. I, I'm sure that has some subconscious way of, of kind of guiding me where I want to take it. Um, but I, I definitely like to think about the animal itself. It It's a hard thing not to kind of dull yourself about the animal's life and, and kind of its animal's death in that sense uh, when you are constantly around it so much. So it, it kind of naturally dulls you. But um, I, I do tend to think about that a lot, about how the animal lived and and what its last moments must have been like, and not in a weird, morbid way, but just in a sad way. Like It, it tends to make me kind of sad when I think about him. Um, and I think that's part of why I geared toward taxidermy. It's not so much a love for the dead animals. It's a love for the live animals and trying to trying to bring it back to life in a way. Um, even if it's not actually alive, at least it it looks alive and it's preserved and it's not just going to just kind of rot out and, and disappear from the earth altogether. I think uh, a lot of people that are into taxidermy in these unconventional ways, I, I think it is because they also love the animal and it is their chance to be able to get up close and and see them and and appreciate the the real artist at hand and that is nature um like you said the the intricate hands that they have the the way their joints form and move and and i think it is that appreciation for life uh but using death to to get it
0: which is very victorian and- isn't it I mean, were the Victorians not just obsessed so. with death? They worshiped, they had like death cults. And so unsurprisingly, there's this, as you mentioned earlier, giant tradition among the Victorians of anthropomorphic taxidermy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, um, I think it, it does. And that's as far as I've ever seen it stem to that that Victorian age, that that kind of, Cabinet of Curiosity era, um, but you know it, it probably extends a lot further than that. Than we just don't realize.
0: Well, of course, you know the ancient Egyptians have to get credit for everything because they invented everything and, and taxidermy. That's yeah, true. goes goes back to ancient Egypt. Um, I I in the same conversation where I was defending like my enthusiasm for your work and this kind of art form in general. Um, I said, you know, you, you might think like, oh, taxidermist, that's probably a weird person or a strange person. I did um, a news archive search. I scoured the country for like a century looking for taxidermists who've gotten in trouble with the law. And 99% of taxidermists who ever get in trouble with the law get in trouble because they've done a mount with um, game that was illegally illegally obtained, right? Protected it game right. animals from Africa, for example, but also protect it game here in the United States. And I could not help but notice when I was looking at your website and your socials, that that's something you make a big point about, that you don't work, you will only work with um, animals that are lawful and legally obtained. Cause that's pretty much the only time I see taxidermists get in trouble. How about you?
1: You know, and I hate that media has to kind of portray the taxidermist as this Norman Bates kind of serial killer and that's that's like his starting approach and then it goes into people. And, you know, a lot of us aren't like that. You know, most taxidermists are just a Bubba Ray good old boy who hunts and and stuffs deer and then the others like us have this possibly morbid fascination with it but otherwise are the nicest people and the most harmless people you'll ever come across. You know, as far as like, keeping your hands clean of, of unlawful animals. So, uh, you know, I get far too many people who like to ask me if, if I would do this talk for them that I got hit by a car and just happened to be in their yard and they wanted. and no, sorry, can't touch it. Not going to touch it. That's, you know, some animals are illegal and you got to respect the the wildlife laws in your area and, and kind of adhere to that. Because if you do that, you'll be fine. But if you don't, then you can possibly lose your entire business. So uh, yeah, I, I definitely stick to the lawful things. And, and most things I stick with nowadays are kind of domestic, like the rats and the pets. And, and I don't do a whole lot of wild life itself.
0: What's a dream animal that you would love to um, work with?
1: Well, one of my dream animals was uh, a baboon and a vervet. I, I'm a big fan of primates. Um, that's kind of partially what I went to school for, anthropology and and kind of that tie between humans and nature and, and like that middle ground, which is, you know, these missing links of, of ape and people basically. But um, so that's one of my dream things that I did get to um, accomplish. Um Aside from that, I would love to do like a large bear mount. Um, I think that's one thing I've always wanted is, is just a big old grizzly bear, um, in my house. But, uh, one of my really big dreams isn't technically taxidermy at all. And I, I really love, uh, prehistoric animals. So I've always wanted to make a replica like woolly mammoth or woolly rhino, um, possibly using real skin from like a musk ox or something. But I think that's my biggest dream I have is is to create something like that, which is definitely further along in the art side than it is the tax term side.
0: Listen, your woolly mammoth dream might be closer than you know. There was an article um, that hit my news feed couple of weeks ago. And it was scientists have um, isolated the DNA of the woolly mammoth. And they think they're about four years away from being able to um, bring the woolly mammoth back, at least in the form of one specimen. Now, you know, there's going to have to be some cloning involved, right? Because We don't have, you know, when a man woolly mammoth loves a lady woolly mammoth very much, they make babies. We don't have that. So you know that there's going to be some gene splicing and some cloning involved here. But scientists feel pretty confident that they're going to be able to return the woolly mammoth to life. So like cue the Jurassic Park theme song or whatever. Um, It'll be interesting to see, right, how this plays out. But you think about the role that taxidermy has played in the museums of natural history around the world and in giving people their their only way to visualize animals that no longer wander like the Great Plains buffalo right there we no longer have giant herds of buffalo stampeding across the American west we no longer have woolly mammoths we don't have saber-toothed tigers we have we don't have dodos right we have all these animals that um, have gone extinct and between science and taxidermy that's kind of people's only way of have any grasp of what that animal actually was
1: like the dodo and the the thylacine like we wouldn't have those things if they weren't preserved by a, a taxidermist or at least somebody who knew how to do the process um and we would just have like uh written accounts and descriptions and and possibly some drawings but we all know how those don't look as accurate as they should so um Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if it weren't for taxidermy being done to those animals at that time, we we wouldn't have anything, possibly not even DNA to to work with to to clone a woolly mammoth or, or a thylacine.
0: So what are... I mean, obviously one big misunderstanding about taxidermy and taxidermists is that, you know, you're all like (sighs) in your basements being all freaky and creepy and menacing when that just isn't true at all. What are some of the other misunderstandings you've come across in your conversations with people when you tell them what you do?
1: Um, I think the biggest misunderstanding I get is, aside from them thinking I'm a serial killer, is that they think I'm going to kill the animals or that I did kill the animals. Uh, kids will kind of hit me with that a lot when I'm at a a expo vending and we'll see like these little cute rats and everything. And they're like, Oh, why'd you kill them? And, um, just because you work with the animal, a dead one, doesn't mean you're the reason it's dead. Uh, I think that's the biggest misunderstanding that and, and the other side, um, a lot of people think, Oh, you must be a hunter as well. You must, you know, what do you, what caliber do you shoot and all this? And I don't do that. Uh, I just work with the animal because I love the animals. Um, so I think thinking that I'm the reason it's dead would probably be the number one misconception, uh, with a taxidermist. And also that, you know, like you kind of put it in that, uh, in that voice, it, you know, we're not weird kind of crit keepers that <laughs> that you would point out in a room and say, hey, that guy, yeah, he's he's a taxidermist. <laughs> I like to think I look fairly normal.
0: <laughs> well, have you had um, any requests from customers for commissions or potential commissions that struck you as, all right, dude, each their own, that's a little weird? Matthew shared that he'd had kind of an odd request from a man to turn his mother-in-law into a taxidermy mount. He declined and hoped the guy was kidding. But you know, the truth is, you really can't preserve a human being through taxidermy. For starters, there are super strict laws and regulations around the handling of human remains. But even beyond that, humans lack scales, feathers, or fur. There's nothing to hide the discoloration and deterioration of human skin after death. It's not elastic enough. It's not durable enough. It looks radically different once it's dried or tanned. got to trust me on this. I know you love your grandpa, and I know it seems like it will be a comfort to park his preserved remains in his well-worn recliner for all time, but it's just not a thing that can or should or ever will happen, okay? No, no, listen, seriously, you have to promise that you're not even going to try this. got to promise. That said, humans are so abundantly freaky and fun that you never have to wait long for a fun little surprise to come your way.
1: I don't know how far I can go with this, but I, I did ask or have someone ask if I would do uh, a butt plug. and you, you can go as far as you want. Like so let me... Term- a taxidermy... Okay. Well, they wanted a the taxidermy butt-plugged squirrel, basically. So, essentially, it would look like a squirrel was either going in or going out. I didn't stick around for the whole conversation. Um, I kind of shut it down. But, yeah, I've gotten some weird things, some weird uh, requests.
0: And sometimes a scavenging taxidermy artist like Matthew finds himself with a little spleening to do.
1: So, sure. I was pulled over one time. Um I accidentally ran a stoplight, you know, or or a stop sign rather, you know, sue me. But, uh, I did happen to have a half of a dead beaver in the back of my car. Um, a stuffed one, I should say. Um, so I did have a stuffed beaver and and that was a a kick from the officer. He he enjoyed that immensely. Which Um, half of the beaver did you have? Which half was the beaver? Yeah, I did like a, just kind of like a shoulder mount, um, so it was okay. just like the front half kind of in a, a mock swimming pose. Uh, I think when I, I bought just a, a pre-tanned skin that, that didn't have the back half. So I just kind of worked with what I was given. Um, and then my biggest thing, a, a lot of my taxonomy does come from roadkill. So a lot of the possums, the raccoons and the squirrels and stuff, that's, that's where I get them. Just take a Sunday drive in the morning and start collecting um so i've not been pulled over but one time i was collecting a mink that was on a, a fairly busy highway uh and a cop did pull up behind me um but i gave him an awkward little wave i think he was just thinking i had a, a broke down car or something
0: so speaking of the cops let's talk about that scissor happy nurse back in late winter 2022 a 62-year-old man in Wisconsin took a bad fall in his home. The heat had gone out, and Wisconsin happens to be cold as balls in the winter months. Think I'm exaggerating? It was so cold in that house that the poor man suffered extreme frostbite in both feet. He ended up in an assisted living facility while he recovered. Now, medical staff there did seem to agree that at least one of his feet was graveyard dead, blackened, Foul-smelling and hanging on by a tendon. Please let me remind you that this is not a tale from the olden times before we had modern medicine, but a tale from last year in America. Okay, okay. Anywho, Nurse Mary K. Brown made the decision to snip off the gentleman's foot with a pair of scissors. Three other nurses were in the room witnessed this ad hoc amputation and reported that nurse Brown declared her intention to epoxy the severed foot. Her plan was to park the preserved piggies by the cash register at her father's taxidermy shop with a sign reading, wear your boots, kids clever and callous and more than a little bit crazy. See, here's the deal. There was no medical order issued for the amputation. And though Brown told investigators that the patient felt no pain from the procedure and that she had planned to freeze the foot so that it could be buried with the body when the time came, her fellow nurses told a different story. One reported that the patient was moaning as his foot was scissored off and three days later was still complaining about how much it hurt. No reports were filed on the removal of the foot and nothing was noted in the patient's chart. The CEO of the facility was like, Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to get a doctor's order before you hack off a body part, but Nurse Brown didn't have any malicious motives, so can we please just move on? But law enforcement was like, Yeah. No. Nurse Brown was charged with physical abuse of an elderly person intentionally causing great bodily harm and mayhem, which is one of my favorite charges, with increased penalties since the victim fit the legal definition of an elderly person. The man died a week later. The criminal complaint against Brown doesn't state that the amputation caused or contributed to his death. Maybe it didn't. Maybe he was just caught in the eye of a hurricane of pure suck. Kind of like the one Mary Kay Brown is currently riding out. She's facing up to $100,000 in fines and or 40 years in prison if convicted. And her poor daddy never did get his epoxy human foot to prop next to the cash register at his taxidermy shop. This is the kind of story that has a way of making you give other taxidermists the side eye, which is really, really, really unfair.
1: I think that's the main takeaway I would like people to get is, you know, taxidermy is, is a way to memorialize nature. Uh, even, even the hunting side of it, it's, it's all about the appreciation of nature done right and, and conserved correctly. It, it helps nature. So um, I think this, this idea that taxidermy is, is, is this, creepy kind of, of embodiment of, of death in itself. That's not what we're trying to show you. We're trying to show you the life of this animal in a traditional mount or otherwise. We're trying to show that this is what this animal looked like in life and in it's pristine and it's majestic state. And I, I think that would be a better takeaway for people than, than ooh, gross, dead, Squirrel,
0: but by the time you finish with it, it's not ooh gross dead squirrel. It's like, holy cow, is that squirrel wearing a nurse's hat? <laughs> like it's a, it's a completely different, it's a different animal to use that phrase altogether. Um, which is what I like about your work because we have a lot of traditional taxidermy all over different relatives' houses. I mean, like I said, I grew up with it, and you're like that. That is a man. That's a nice looking buck, but. But that buck, that traditional mount, speaks only of itself. It's it's a nice buck, somebody really had a good day, look at the rack, whatever. But when I look at your work, those animals are so whimsical. And they carry with them like a whole story, a whole story that comes to life in your imagination. It's a very different. It's not tax it's not ta- it's not your daddy's taxidermy, is what I'm saying.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that is rogue taxidermy. Um, that's kind of the, the term that's been coined um, for, for that style, the anthropomorphic, the weird, the odd, the non-traditional. That kind of opens you up. So you can do different things and say different stories. You can make it political. You can make it whimsical. You can um, tell this story fantastical world. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I get into that when I, when I do a really odd mount or something. Um, one of my favorite pieces was this this little dead um, starling bird. Um, and I, I put uh, like a small LED within its chest, kind of in its dead pose. And I, I put these uh, crystals on top of the LED so when you turn it on, these crystals kind of lit up and they were kind of erupting from the, the bird's chest. And, you know, when I was doing it, I was kind of telling myself this whole story about, you know, this fungus or or organism that, that ate off of the dead body but its kind of fungal state was these crystals. So it was just this kind of very fantasy world that I kind of built around this this little mount that, that I was trying to tell that kind of story about how it Uh, kind of grew its life from the life of this dead body, basically.
0: And when you finish a piece and you kind of sit back from it and you look at it, um, do you have moments where you think to yourself, yeah, I, I found her or I found him. That was exactly what this animal was trying to speak into being for me.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely, um, nothing's more satisfying than be able to step back from a, from a mount and, and know that I got it. But that, that is just perfect. And of course, you know, an artist is their own worst critic. So, of course, like as far as some things go, you can never be perfect. But to get that story or that um, expression right is, is definitely uh, the most satisfying thing in my job.
0: You can check out Matthew's work on Instagram. Just follow Rogue Wolf Taxidermy. And hey, maybe treat yourself or someone you love to a Mardi Gras squirrel or a demon goat or a banjo-playing raccoon. You're going to want it all. And kids, if you learn nothing else today, remember, wear your boots. Next time on True Weird Stuff... America's first celebrity serial killer wasn't a lone male described by his neighbors as the quiet type. No, it was a family, a family of four, who set up grisly and gruesome shops smack in the middle of the heartland. What they did and how they did it will haunt you. But you got to give them this, the family that slays together stays together.
1: And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus button in the top right corner and now it helps an independent podcast like ours to get discovered. And we really appreciate it if you subscribe, rate, and review True Weird Stuff.
0: Hit our website, trueweirdstuff.com for show notes and photos and videos when we have it and bonus content. Everything True Weird is waiting for you at trueweirdstuff.com.
1: And follow True Weird Stuff on Instagram and
0: Twitter. True Weird Stuff is a now meeting production. Our executive producer is Anthony Garcia. The show is written and hosted by me, Sherry Lynch, along with my deeply weird director, Max Swinton. Our equally odd producer is Carrie Bowser. Additional production by the mysterious Stephen Call. Our digital witch and social media cult leader is Heather Furr. Original graphics by Kevin Nash. Original artworks by Olivia Axlin. True, weird, original music composed and performed by Jack Griffin and Zane Nash. Copyright 2023, now media. All rights reserved. All wrongs remembered.